the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. John Schneider. He is executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. I think it's one of the most significant ministries that's going on, not only in our community, but across the country. We'll talk with Dr. Schneider about that. And if the name sounds familiar, yes, uh, John Schneider was a pastor in the uh, Portland metro area for many years as well. That's coming up again in our five o'clock hour. First, a quick look at some of the uh, uh, day's headlines. Uh, Beto O'Rourke says he's feeling the heat on the campaign trail as the RNC is tweeting uh, and uh, or as the RNC tweet falls flat, Democratic presidential candidate vowed Sunday that nothing from his questionable past will sidetrack his campaign. On the trail in Wisconsin, he denied he'd ever taken the drug LSD, vowed to stop using profanities, particularly one word, especially in front of kids. The Republican National Committee sparked an uproar when it attempted to capitalize on his past transgressions by tweeting his 1998 drunken driving mugshot with a photoshopped leprechaun hat atop that read, please drink responsibly. Fellow Republicans slammed the tweet as insensitive, especially since it was St. Patrick's Day. Such is politics in the 21st century. Meanwhile, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney on Sunday defended the president against any attempts to link him to last Friday's terror attack on two New Zealand mosques that led 50 people dead. In an interview on Fox News Sunday, Mulvaney said Trump is not a white supremacist and was unfair to characterize the New Zealand gunman arrest in uh, the attack as a Trump supporter. The top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee voted for the resolution calling for any final report, rather, in special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation to be made public, but said on Sunday it was unnecessary because it was a failed attempt by Democrats to divide the GOP. It was a political stunt by the Democrats who felt that they who felt rather that they could divide Republicans into voting no upon it, said Representative Doug Collins on Sunday morning futures. The largely symbolic Democratic backed resolution, which passed 420 zero came as Mueller's uh, appears to be nearing an end to his investigation appears to be Hmm. one noted higher education critic says the widespread college admission scandal that rocked the nation last week was bound to happen simply because of the elitist nature and power structure of prestigious universities the celebrity college admissions cheating scandal has two clear takeaways an elite college degree has taken on wildly inflated importance in American society, and the sports industrial complex enjoys widely inflated power within universities, writes Heather McDonald, contributing uh, editor of City Journal in a piece appearing uh, on their website. None of this could have happened if higher education had not itself become a corrupt institution, featuring low classroom uh, demand, no core knowledge acquisition, low grading standards, fashionable but society-destroying left-wing activism, luxury hotel amenities, endless partying, and huge expense, end quote. Meanwhile, actress Lori Laughlin's humble bragging about money spent on daughter Olivia Jade's education appears to have come back to haunt her. 
And federal prosecutors and Department of Transportation officials are examining the development of Boeing Company's 737 MAX jetliners. More on that later in the program. The Wall Street Journal reports that at least one person involved in the 737 MAX development, the journal uh, reports, was issued a broad subpoena by a Washington, D.C. grand jury on the 11th of this month, the day after the Ethiopian airline crash that killed all 157 people on board. And take it from me as someone who has worked at the highest levels of government and politics, so writes Steve Hilton, author of The Next uh, Revolution, on why he believes Beto O'Rourke is a dangerous 2020 candidate. The most important thing he writes about a candidate is not their promises, those Um, hardly ever get delivered anyway. It's about how they would respond to unpredictable future events, and that's about their character. Whatever else people knew about Donald Trump going into 2016, it was obvious he was strong. He said what he thought, no matter who it offended. But Beto O'Rourke says whatever people want to hear, Steve Hilton predicts. President Donald Trump on Friday issued the first veto of his presidency, defying a bipartisan rebuke of the national emergency he declared to circumvent Congress to get more money for his proposed southern border wall. Attorney General uh, William Barr was on hand to tell the president that his emergency declaration was clearly consistent with the law. Homeland Security Kirsten ne- uh, Secretary rather Kirsten Nielsen told him that the fact that it was an emergency was undeniable. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced on March 26th the House will once again act to protect our Constitution and our democracy from the president's emergency declaration by holding a vote to override his veto. Thus far, they're about 40 votes shy of accomplishing that goal. On the Senate side, the Hill says Republicans are already setting their sights on making it easier to terminate future emergency declarations, setting up an intriguing round two. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has tapped Senator Ron Johnson to craft legislation that could win the 60 votes needed for a bill to defeat a filibuster and ultimately pass the upper chamber. Roughly a third of Republican conferees, uh, it's already backing legislation from Senator Mike Lee that would require Congress to pass a resolution approving future national emergency declarations declarations within 30 days. Now, this is a third authority, rather, that uh, Congress some 40 years ago gave to the executive, and now they are attempting to wrest it back. Well, Johnson stated that he thought the basic concept of Lee's bill was correct and could pass constitutional muster, but that he expected others would have ideas on what the final legislation should look like. Unlike the House's political theater, this is a far more sensible approach. As was stated last week, we still argue that Trump has not exceeded his authority under the law as it stands currently, but we also believe that the National Emergencies Act grants too much power to the executive branch. That's what the Republican Party is rightly seeking to ameliorate. Again, this is authority some 30, uh, 40 years ago. Congress uh, gave to uh, the president, to the executive, and now the House is seeking to uh, take it back. And in fact, the Supreme Court has ruled on more than one occasion that the House cannot cede its authority to other branches of the government. And it seems highly likely this would pass muster if they succeed in the Senate and if it were ultimately to be decided upon in the Supreme Court. Well, speaking of emergencies, criminal organizations in Mexico have mounted a lucrative new smuggling operation that uses express buses to deliver Guatemalan migrant families to the U.S. border in a matter of days, making the journey faster, easier and safer, according to U.S. law enforcement reports and U.S. and Guatemalan officials. Paying up to $7,000 per adult with child, families are transported to staging areas at ranches and hotels in southern Mexico, where they're organized into bus groups and rushed north along Mexico. Mexican highways, stopping only for food, fuel, and bathroom breaks, according to the U.S. law enforcement documents. 
Ambitious proposals to end climate change and provide health care for everyone have failed to win the support of even half of the House Democratic Caucus, the Washington Examiner reports, effectively dooming any chance of floor consideration. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal has been publicly endorsed by a mere 90 Democrats, a fraction of the caucus's 235 members. Similarly, the Democrats' Medicare for All has a relatively lackluster 106 total co-sponsors. However, while it's, uh, it's good that, as the examiner headlines it, the socialist agenda stalls in the House. The fact that even this many lawmakers approve of these schemes is a cause for alarm. And NBC News reports Beto O'Rourke raised $6.1 million in his first 24 hours as a presidential candidate, according to his campaign, surpassing Bernie Sanders uh, and every other 2020 Democrat who has disclosed their figures. Sanders beat expectations and stunned observers by raising uh, then records $5.9 million in his first 24 hours as a candidate last month. However, O'Rourke's haul comes despite his writing uh, murder fantasy, hacking computers and DUI charge. Oh, It's going to be an interesting race. And Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign announced Friday it will have a unionized workforce, a first for a majority party candidate, according to The Hill. Memo to Sanders et al. Be careful what you wish for. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. John Schneider, Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries, and it's an important ministry to the seniors in our community. Hope you'll stick around and listen and uh, take advantage of the opportunity to come alongside and help. On this day in 2005, doctors in Florida, acting on orders of a state judge, removed Terry Schiavo's feeding tube. Despite the efforts of congressional Republicans to intervene and repeated court appeals by Schiavo's family, her parents, the brain-damaged woman would die on March 31st, 2005, at age 41. And on this day in 1980, Frank Gotti, the 12-year-old uh, youngest son of mobster John Gotti, is struck and killed by a car driven by John Favara, a neighbor in Queens, New York. The following July, Favara vanishes, the apparent victim of a gang hit. And on this day in 1965, the first spacewalk takes place as Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov goes outside of his uh, uh, Voskhod capsule, um, secured by a tether. Well, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York officially joined the 2020 presidential race on Sunday, declaring in an announcement video that America needs a leader who makes big, bold, brave choices and that she is that leader. There was a little drama about whether Ms. Gillibrand would officially enter the presidential race ever since she had announced she was exploring a run in January on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She has spent the last two months traveling the country, raising money in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, California and Texas. The video announcement kicks off a busy week for Ms. Gillibrand that will culminate in what her campaign is billing as her first speech as a presidential candidate next Sunday in Manhattan, which she will deliver pointedly outside one of President Trump's properties. And while some candidates have shied from making Mr. Trump a centerpiece of their campaigns, the location of the speech signals that Ms. Gillibrand has no such hesitation. She's voted against Mr. Trump nominees at a faster clip than any other senator, a talking point for her, cam- uh, for her rather on the campaign trail. In her announcement video, she uses the lyrics of the Star Spangled Banner as a jumping off point to her campaign. 
in which um, Senator Gillibrand announces she is running for president. She listed top policy priorities like universal health care, paid family leave for all and ending gun violence. It asks, will brave win? She says of the national anthem. Well, it hasn't always and it uh, isn't right now. As Ms. Gillibrand narrates, the imagery of the video turns from paeons of patriotism to clips of Mr. Trump and the violence spurred by white nationalists in Charlotte, uh, Virg- Charlottesville, rather, Virginia. Ms. Gillibrand's lists some of her uh, top policy priorities in the video, including universal health care, paid family leave, ending gun violence, a Green New Deal, getting money out of politics. She has uh, put her advocacy for women at both the center of her political career and her coming presidential campaign. She makes... Uh, the growing list of Democrats uh, continue. Meanwhile, the former vice president's anticipated entry into the 2020 race is the last major factor looming over the opening chapter of the Democratic primary. After a likely announcement in April, the former vice president is hoping to seize command of the highly fluid contest through major endorsements, a message of strength and an argument that the party's most urgent task should be defeating President Donald Trump. Democrats familiar with his plans are telling CNN, it can't go on like this, folks. I know I get criticized and I uh, uh, and told I get criticized by the new left, Biden said in a weekend speech to Delaware Democrats before almost announcing he was running for president. I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the United States, anybody who would run, he corrected himself. While his verbal slip, intentional or not, drew laughter in the room and considerable attention outside. But it was the words new left that may have offered the best clue about how he plans to run a third bid for the White House. He plans to emphasize the record of the Obama administration over his own long record from the Senate and intends to push back on any notion he's not progressive enough for today's Democratic Party. As he prepares for a possible run, the former vice president has hunkered down for strategy sessions with a tight-knit group of advisors, held meetings with top Democrats and elected officials. One subject of discussion has been the early selection of a running mate, which one aide said would help keep the focus on the primary fight on the ultimate goal of unseating Donald Trump. Again, it's expected that an announcement would be made sometime in early April. California GOP Representative Devin Nunez has filed a major lawsuit seeking $250 million in compensatory damages and $350,000 in punitive damages against Twitter and a handful of its users uh, today, accusing the social media site of shadow banning conservatives, including himself, to influence the 2018 elections, systematically censoring opposing viewpoints and totally ignoring lawful complaints of repeated abusive behavior. In a complaint filed in Virginia, state court today obtained by Fox News. Nunez charged that Twitter wanted to derail his work on the House Intelligence Committee, which he chaired until 2019 as he probed alleged and apparent surveillance abuses by the government. Nunez says Twitter was guilty of knowingly hosting and monetizing content that is clearly abusive, hateful and defamatory, providing both a voice and financial incentive to the defamers, thereby facilitating defamation on its platform. The lawsuit alleges defamation, conspiracy and negligence and seeks not only damages, but also an injunction compelling Twitter to uh, turn over the identities beyond numerous accounts he says have harassed and defamed him. And although federal law ordinarily exempts services like Twitter from defamation liability, Nunez's suit says the platform has taken such an active role in curating and banning content as opposed to merely hosting it that it should face liability like any other organization that defames. Twitter created and developed the content at issue in this case by transforming 
forming false accusations of criminal conduct, imputed wrongdoing, dishonesty, and lack of integrity into a public, a, a publicly available commodity used by unscrupulous political operatives and their uh, donor clients as a weapon, Nunez's legal team wrote. Twitter is responsible for the development of offensive content on its platform because in it, some way specifically encourages dis- development of what is offensive about the content. Well, additionally, the um, complaint states that Twitter has a duty to exercise reasonable care to avoid hosting outwardly defamatory content because of its increasingly important role in current affairs. We'll continue to follow that story. And Reuters is facing ethical questions after admitting that reporter Joseph Men sat on an unfavorable story about media darling Beto O'Rourke until after his crucial Senate race against Ted Cruz. Reuters published its report Friday on the cult of the dead cow, a famous group of hackers credited with inventing the term hacktivism and revealed that now the uh, now 2020 presidential candidate O'Rourke was a member. The group is responsible for a variety of shady activities like stealing credit card numbers to pay for long distance telephone services, violating copyright laws and hacking into computers, according to the report, which stressed that O'Rourke himself never engaged in the edgiest sorts of hacking activity. And that's a quote. The report also revealed that a teenage Beto in connection with the group wrote bizarre fiction stories under the name of psychedelic warlord, including one story detailing the murder of two children. The report was embarrassing for O'Rourke, who expressed regret for his past actions and writings shortly after the article's publication. But the reporter, it turns out, knew about his history since 2017 and sat on it. According to men, members of the hacking group were protecting O'Rourke's identity and wouldn't confirm his affiliation unless the reporter promised not to write about it until after the November election. They apparently struck a deal. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. I want to remind you that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with the Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries, John Schneider. Uh, Dr. Schneider is uh, currently the Executive Director, has been a pastor here in the uh, Portland metro area for a number of years and now serves uh, and ministers to those who are in nursing facilities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Minnesota Democrats are seriously considering the prospect of supporting an unprecedented primary challenge to Minnesota Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar in 2020, following that bipartisan condemnation of several of her remarks as anti-Semitic, according to officials and state representatives. Activists and officials interviewed by The Hill said that although they... Uh, have not yet recruited a viable alternative candidate to the 37-year-old Omar. Frustrations are mounting. There's definitely some buzz going on about it, but it's more of a buzz uh, um, uh, than anything else at this point, they're saying. Um, uh, There's definitely talk about people wanting someone to run against her. Well, Omar um, is a uh, Somali community activist, told the Washington Post uh, that uh, the... Community has been in touch with the Jewish community leaders about Omar. He said he supposed her campaign um, uh, supported her campaign, but called her recent comments wrong, period. Now, Omar Jamal is a Somali community activist. This is up to Ilhan Omar. He said she has really spoken in a very dangerous way, and it's going to be up to her to reach out to people and to fix this. Well, added Steve Hewing, who is the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council in Minnesota, and 
uh, the Dakotas, says our community is exasperated by Representative Omar's unfulfilled promises to listen and learn from the Jewish constituents while seemingly simultaneously finding another opportunity to make an anti-Semitic remark and insult our community. Hewing uh, noted that he had not, uh, that rather that he had met with Omar the Somali-American and one of two uh, Muslim women in Congress after she initially implied that Jewish politicians were bought. Omar reignited the flames later when she once again suggested that groups supportive of Israel were pushing members of Congress to have allegiance to a foreign country. Unfortunately, having the opportunity to speak with her about that point didn't dissuade her making the statements, Huang said in an interview with The Hill. We were appalled. And uh, we'll keep following that story to see if, in fact, there is a an alternative um, uh, campaign being mounted. And the French Civil Aviation Investigation Bureau, or BEA, has concluded there were clear similarities between this month's crash of an Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX plane and a Lion airplane crash last October. The French Bureau said today that the black box data from the Ethiopian Airlines flight showed the links and will be used for further study. Ethiopian authorities, rather, asked BEA for help and Exact, extracting the and interpreting the crashed plane's black boxes because Ethiopia does not have the necessary expertise and technology. The Ethiopian Accident Investigation Bureau intends to release a preliminary port, uh, report within 30 days. One of the things that seems to be emerging from this investigation is that um, insufficient training was uh, played a role in uh, both of these events in that there were ways to switch off the system that was challenging for some of these pilots who had had far less training that is required in the United States. But that investigation will continue. And the uh, audio uh, from the black box has been returned to Ethiopia for interpretation that will give further insight into what happened in that cockpit before that crash. Meanwhile, Congress would reclaim powers it conceded to the executive branch more than 40 years ago in the declaration of national emergency if a bill introduced by Senator Mike Lee, a Republican out of Utah, becomes law. If Congress is troubled by recent emergency declarations made pursuant to the National Emergencies Act, they only have themselves to blame, Lee said in a statement uh, last week marking the introduction of his bill. Congress gave these legislative powers away in 1976, and it is far past time that we as the institution took them back, Lee said of his bill called the Article One Act, in a reference to the section of the Constitution establishing the legislative branch and its powers. President Trump provoked some Republicans as well as Democrats by declaring a national emergency earlier this month in order to unlock funding for his promised barrier along the U.S.-Mexico border. The National Emergencies Act was passed in 1976. It put a statutory framework in place, allowing a president to declare a national emergency with some limitations. It also allows Congress to end any emergency declaration if it has the votes to do so. Instead, stipulates that a president must renew the declaration after 180 days. Well, Lee's uh, bill would revise the law to say that an emergency declaration automatically expires after 30 days unless the House and Senate vote to keep it. Lee says it's time for Congress to reclaim the powers it gave to the executive branch in the National Emergencies Act. And although the president acted within the scope of the law as written, Lee's proposal makes sense. John Malcolm, who directs the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, uh, said in an email that I am very sympathetic to Senator Lee's position that Congress has delegated an excessive amount of its lawmaking authority to the executive branch. I think you could argue to the 
judicial branch as well. We won't go into how now, but mostly to executive branch agencies, but occasionally to the president himself. As a general matter, Congress should stop passing the buck and should reclaim its legislative power, which will strengthen the separation of powers that the founders considered and correctly so essential to preserving our liberties. Republicans and Democrats alike openly oppose the president's emergency declaration to obtain wall funds that Congress denied. Uh, And again, this is authority that they have granted to presidents in the past, but in this particular case um, found intolerable. If we don't want our president acting like a king, we need to start taking back the legislative power that allows him to do so. Or for that matter, any executive, Lee said, the Article One Act will go a long way to restoring the balance of powers in our republic. Lee's Republican co-sponsors include Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Joni um, Ernst of Iowa, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, Ron Johnson and many others. The Senate is scheduled to vote Thursday to reverse the president's emergency declaration, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has hinted the Senate may reform the 1976 law. Well, Senate Democrats have introduced legislation, uh, this is last Tuesday, in both the House and the Senate, that would repeal the Hyde Amendment. It's uh, the ban on taxpayer funding of abortion. And this is the first time the legislation was introduced in the Senate. Representative Barbara Lee uh, previewed her plan to introduce the legislation back in January when she promised to, and I quote, end the Hyde Amendment alongside Planned Parenthood President Leanna Wynn. The Hyde Amendment is a spending rider that prohibits taxpayer funding of abortions, except in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother, recognizing that many taxpayers might have moral objections to their money being used for abortions. It's been passed in Congress every year since 1976 with bipartisan support. Without addressing the moral objections taxpayers might have to the funding, the Democrats argued that uh, the funding ban limits abortion access for low-income women. Senator Tammy Duckworth, uh, who introduced the bill in the Senate for the first time, made that argument in a statement on Tuesday, saying the Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed women's constitutional right to make their own reproductive decisions. She went on to say, but for decades, conservative lawmakers have worked to whittle down that constitutionally protected right to the point where it's now effectively inaccessible for low-income women who rely on Medicaid, for female service members, and for millions more women nationwide. The Supreme Court didn't protect these rights only for wealthy women, and they didn't say only for women who live in certain states, she concluded. That's not right. It's not fair, she said, and it's certainly not equal. So I'm proud to join my colleagues in introducing the Each Woman Act so that every woman in this country has equal access to her constitutionally protected rights, no matter her income, her race or her zip code, making the case that if the Supreme Court says the right to abortion exists, then the public has an obligation to fund it. Representative Lee made a similar case, arguing that no woman should be denied the full spectrum of reproductive health care because of her zip code or her income level. While the Democrats' push to end the Hyde Amendment is relatively recent, Representative Lee introduced her first bill attempting to do so back in 2015, and the Democratic Party changed their platform in 2016 to include a call to repeal that amendment. The majority of Americans would likely oppose the Democrats' push to end the Hyde Amendment as recent polling by Marist found that 54 percent of Americans oppose any taxpayer funding of abortion. We'll follow that story as it develops. By the way, tomorrow is the public hearing for House Bill 2217. It's a bill that would expand how physician-assisted suicide is administered in the state of Oregon, making it possible... Um, by changing the language for not only the individual seeking uh, a suicide, but others to administer the lethal drug. 
and uh, they need as many advocates as possible to show up uh, for the uh, to oppose the bill at the hearing tomorrow at the Capitol. The hearing is 3 o'clock p.m. tomorrow in hearing room E on the first floor of the uh, state Capitol in Salem. They're going to be meeting outside the room at about 2.30 and distributing stickers to uh, wear in the hearing room if you're interested in uh, participating that uh, in that. If you're not ready to or cannot attend, they're also asking you to communicate with lawmakers who sit on that committee. Again, it's House Bill 2217. For more information, you can go to the Oregon Right to Life webpage for details. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. John Schneider, Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries, Inc. If you want to know a place where the gospel needs to be proclaimed, join us. He'll be with us about 15 minutes after the hour. Dr. John Schneider. Well, New Mexico's bill was supposed to be a slam dunk, but after New York, nothing on abortion is a sure thing, not anymore. Well, in a country that saw a 17-point jump in the number of pro-lifers since January, it's no wonder that state Democrats are taking a good hard look at their positions, especially on late-term abortion. Americans have changed, and it looks like smart politicians are changing with them. Eight New Mexico Democrats joined Republicans to block late-term abortion bill in that state. No one was more surprised by Thursday night's vote than uh, Democratic governor and abortion extremist Michelle Luan Grisham. After the House sent, uh, had sent the bill on with a 40-29 to 29 vote, the Democrats' stranglehold on the Senate was supposed to mean that the New York-style HB 51 was a done deal, but despite the party's 26-16 edge, the vote fell far from the party lines. In a stunning victory for pro-lifers, eight Democrats crossed over, killing a bill that would have legalized infanticide and given abortionists the right to destroy babies up to the moment of birth. Grisham, who hadn't counted on the intense lobbying from pastors and state conservatives, was astounded. That it was even a debate, much less a difficult vote for some senators, is inexplicable to me, she told reporters. Well, by a 24-18 tally, Democratic state senators Pete Campos, Carlos Cisneros, Richard Martinez, George Munoz, uh, Gabriel Ramos, Clementine Mem Sanchez, John Arthur Smith, and Senate President Pro Tem um, Mary Kay Pepin proved what is a complicated issue abortion is becoming, even for liberal states. Well, during an emotional debate, some Democrats struggled to come up with a reason why New Mexico should leave perfectly healthy babies on a hospital table to die. Uh, Ramos of Silver City told his chamber, this is one of the toughest decisions any of us will ever have to make. But he went on, I stand unified against legislation that weakens the defense of life and threatens the dignity of the human being. While others sometimes spoke through tears, the tension inside the party's caucus was obvious. In one strained exchange, two Democrats squared off against each other. Senator, State Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino of Albuquerque quoted uh, St. Antonius to justify why Catholics should feel free to vote for the bill. The importance of individual choice is what the church has always taught, he said. Ramos demanded to know with which Catholic church he was talking about. Mine does not approve of abortion, Ramos said. Then to his colleagues, he said simply, vote your conscience. Well, thank goodness many did. Their courage dealt one of the most significant blows of the year to the extreme abortion camp. When she was asked, one day's senator could only say we did uh, expect more to be uh, voting in favor, and it didn't turn out that way. Which is just another illustration why your activism, your email, your call, your vote matters. Well, people in Corvallis, Oregon, are still reeling after learning a man who spent his childhood right here in Oregon 
who sat next to them at school and loved cheering for the trailblazers, is one of the 50 killed in the New Zealand attack. His name was Ada Elyon. He was 33, a new husband and a father. Years ago, he and his father helped found a mosque where Friday they were killed. Uh, his friends uh, watched the coverage of the terror in New Zealand frozen. Uh, he hoped his friend, one here in Oregon, was traveling on business. Um, he did that a lot. Sadly, he was not on that day at that time. There was just no way, he thought, that both the husband and the father could be gone. Early Saturday morning, he got an update via phone. I saw a message from his aunt uh, who confirmed that, unfortunately, we had lost our dear friend. Born in Kuwait of Palestinian descent, Elian was a tech entrepreneur, a goalie for New Zealand's national Fustal team. Uh, he spent much of his childhood in Corvallis. Uh, when he was a preteen, his family took their experience to Christ Church, helping to start a mosque there. Well, last Friday, Muslim worshipers at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, suffered a terrorist attack at the hands of an avowed white supremacist. Fifty people were killed with another 50 injured. That included this Oregonian and his father. Prior to the attack, the citizens of Australia posted a lengthy manifesto to social media filled with anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim themes. He then proceeded to live stream the shooting. Some victims originally hailed from Pakistan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Bangladesh, uh, Bangladesh rather, in Indonesia and Malaysia. Well, Gary Bauer, in reflecting from a Christian worldview on what had just happened, the murder at the mosques, there were two of them, he writes that any attack against a place of worship, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a temple is an act of horrific evil. People should be able to pray and seek God in the way their heart tells them without fear. Sadly, in recent years, we have seen too many of these attacks. The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and yesterday's atrocity in New Zealand. What many people are sadly not aware of is that in many parts of the world, violent attacks on people of faith, as well as other forms of systematic persecution, are common occurrences. Over the last decade, Christians in the birthplace of Christianity have been the victims of systematic attacks. They have been driven out of their homes, raped and murdered at such an extreme level that world governments eventually declared a genocide. And there are attacks taking place today that get virtually no press coverage. The communist regime in China is forcing hundreds of thousands of Muslims and Christians into concentration camps reminiscent of the 1930s. At every meeting I attend of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Gary Bauer writes, the reports we we review and the victims we hear from are a regular reminder of how precious religious freedom is. Given the age we live in, I urge every house of worship in America to take steps to ensure the safety of its worshipers. We have done so at my church in Northern Virginia. ISIS, which is on the verge of being defeated in the, on the battlefield, was already calling for renewed attacks overseas. Friday's atrocity in New Zealand is certain to inspire Islamists who have never needed an excuse to wage jihad. Predictably, elements of the American left are uh, were quick to blame the attack on conservatives and President Trump. These are the same people who never blame attacks by radical Islamists on Islam, but they're certain that any attack on a mosque was carried out by a conservative Christian. It must be pointed out that they're um, that pointed out here that radical Islamists are responsible for the vast majority of Muslim deaths. Sadly, the first reaction of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was to mock people of faith for their prayers. As of now, we don't know much about the man who attacked the New Zealand mosque, Britton Tarrant. 
He left behind a lengthy manifesto, which is being analyzed. But we know this much. He was not a conservative. Tarrant wrote, conservatism is dead. Thank God. Small G. Now let us bury it and move on to something of worth. Nor was he a fan of Donald Trump writing as a policymaker and leader. Dear God, no. And according to one report, Tarrant labeled himself an eco-fascist after having previously identified as a communist, an anarchist and a libertarian. Would it be fair to blame someone who wants to clean wants a clean environment for the attack? Well, of course not. Tarrant was clearly a racist and claimed to be inspired by Norwegian mass murderer um, Anders Breivik. Reacting to the attack Friday morning, the president tweeted, My warmest sympathy and best wishes goes out to the people of New Zealand after the horrific massacre in the mosque. Forty-nine innocent people have so senselessly died, with so many more seriously injured. The U.S. stands by New Zealand for anything we can do. God bless all. California, well, I'll just leave it at that. These kinds of attacks on religious men and women occurring all the time without notice. Well, the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, a deep-pocketed civil rights organization, was fired on Wednesday. Morris Dees, a prominent lawyer who founded SPLC in 1971, was reportedly forced uh, forced out due to workplace misconduct, though the organization didn't specify what that misconduct was. The L.A. Times reported a letter signed by about two dozen employees and sent to management and a board of directors before news broke of Dee's firing said they were concerned that internal allegations of mistreatment, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, racism uh, threatened the uh, moral authority of the organization and its integrity along with it. Dee's firing is an important development. Dee's had been the face of SPLC while it was transitioned from investigating genuine hate groups to casting a wide net that lumps in mainstream organizations like the Family Research Council, a social conservative organization with the Ku Klux Klan. Yet despite serious issues with how SPLC defines hate groups, the organization is constantly cited by the media as an authority, during which time Dee's has been continually praised for his work. One prominent journalist in the 90s called these the, quote, the Mother Teresa of Montgomery. Hmm. Large media outlets like CNN, ABC, NBC frequently published LP, uh, SPLC's map. GuideStar, a nonprofit tracker at one point, used it to its hate group tracker, but dropped this later, citing a commitment to objectivity. The bottom line is shedding light on genuine violent and extremist groups is a noble endeavor, but it's inappropriate for the media to continually cite SPLC as an authoritative source on hate without acknowledging its progressive agenda and conflation of extremist groups with mainstream groups with which it disagrees. We're at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic coming up later in the second hour of today's program. We'll talk with Dr. John Schneider, executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Dr. John Schneider. He is executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. He'll join me in studio to talk about the work they're doing, reaching out to uh, the elderly in our communities. It's a much neglected population that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to talking with uh, Dr. Schneider about that coming up in our next segment. Well, Arthur Brooks has published his uh, newest 
newest book, and it's titled Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of, of Contempt. Now, this concept of loving one's enemies certainly isn't original to Arthur Brooks. It comes right out of Scripture. It's one of those commands that we are given, and we are empowered to actually do it by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work within us. Well, uh, in his book, he makes the point that contempt is sort of a funny word. It sounds like anger or something, but it's different. Um, it's interesting because um, he writes it as president of a think tank. I do what presidents of think tanks do, which is not very much thinking in tanks. I'm mostly on the road giving speeches and raising funds to support the operation. He writes, I was giving a talk some years ago in New Hampshire at a conservative event. People who are uh, reading this might have been there. As a matter of fact, it was a slate of presidential candidates, one after the other. And somehow this president of a think tank snuck in there on the schedule. I got there a little early and I was listening and there were presidential candidates doing what they always do, which is basically going out to a sympathetic crowd and saying, you're right and the other side is stupid and evil. And so in the middle of my talk, I thought... I do have to run. For, I don't rather have to run for anything. I'm the president of AEI, which is the American Enterprise Institute. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I just have to do a good job. And I also realize that I have a moral obligation to try to make people better. So I said to the audience, look, you and I agree on foreign policy and on domestic policy and on economics. I mean, we're all conservatives here, but I want you to remember the liberals who aren't here. And I want you to remember that they're not stupid and evil. They're simply people who disagree with us. And we need to persuade them because that's really what our business is about. Persuasion. I didn't get an applause line for that, but this lady afterward did because some um, She said, I think they're stupid and evil. Look, I grew up in Seattle in a progressive family, he writes. My mother was a painter. My father was a professor. I mean, what do you think their politics were in Seattle? And that lady was insulting my family. She didn't mean to, but she was. But I thought to myself, that's uh, different than anger. And that's uh, a freight train coming down the tracks. That was 2014. Well, contempt takes its anger and mixes in disgust. And what really is ripping our country apart is that we're not persuading each other. We're locking down into camps that they... uh, uh, and trying to shell, uh, at least hurl shells at one another, unsuccessfully, by the way. If we want, to, as conservatives, to really have a coalition that's going to be successful in politics in America for a long time, we need to persuade a lot of people in the middle and even on the left. And what we're doing right now, treating others with contempt, treating them as if they're utterly worthless, and them treating us in the same way was a, uh, fundamentally unproductive. And here's the best part. I did a lot of research on this, and this is all in Love Your Enemies. This is the book he's just released. It shows that if you treat other people with contempt, you become unhappy as a person. It's unhealthy, it's unproductive, and it's demoralizing for you, the person who holds the view. So here's the offer. Uh, Because this is not just a book of problems, this is a book of solutions and how-to book on how to live a better life. If you want to persuade more people that the conservative cause is appropriate or correct, if you want to be happier, if you want to be more successful as a leader, do the stuff that I write about in the book. I pretty much guarantee it's going to work. It worked for me. Well, again, the idea of loving one's enemies is not a unique concept to uh, this particular author, but it does remind us of what we are called to do as believers, whether we're conservative or liberal, whether we're um, disagreeing with others in the political realm or in any other realm. There is a virtue in loving one's enemies that uh, is oftentimes overlooked, and that is what one receives in oneself for choosing to obey in that area. 
Well, Brooks goes on again, uh, who is the author of this latest book, this new book, which, by the way, we're working on an interview um, uh, in. And I think it's it's going to be a very productive and useful book in this time that we find ourselves in. He points out that one in six uh, Americans have stopped talking entirely to a family member or a close friend because of political differences. And that is insane. I've got big political differences with people. My politics are well known. I believe in free enterprise. I believe in American leadership. But look, if somebody doesn't believe that the uh, the way I do, I don't think that that person is a contemptible person. I just think they have incorrect ideas, and I have a 0% chance of actually persuading that person if I stop talking to them, and especially if I treat that person with hatred. And that is what we're seeing uh, in the country all across the board. Uh, Brooks goes on, the Gospel of Matthew, in both Jesus, uh, he is pointing out the Gospel of Matthew, he says, um, uh, of this uh, gospel as well as in Luke, in both uh, gospels, Jesus says to his followers, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. And it's this incredibly subversive teaching that he writes about. A lot of people who are listening to us have read the gospels. They've tried to take them to heart. And yet all of us, we have trouble living that out. Well, basically the subversive truth behind that love your enemies is actually not that you should do something that's impossible. It's by treating somebody that you thought was your enemy, not as your enemy by loving that person, you're doing something that will destroy the illusion that that person is your enemy after all. And if you don't get satisfaction, if you don't change that person's heart, at the very least, you'll change your own. That's the subversive teaching of Jesus Christ in those passages. When I read Lincoln's first inaugural, We Are Not Enemies But Friends, what he was saying basically was that I destroy the illusion of enemy status by treating people in a particular way. A lot of people listening, almost everybody listening, I'm going to say are conservative that might uh, that uh, want to persuade the rest of the country. Don't ruin the opportunity to persuade other Americans by giving in to the desire, giving in to the itch of treating others with contempt. Contempt is a kind of metastic phenomenon. It's like cancer, basically. When you treat somebody with contempt, you make a permanent enemy. You just can't go back from that. You have to be master of yourself. And why do we do that? Because they treat us with contempt. I got it. You go on Twitter, which is the contempt machine. You talk about politics, maybe around the dining table, Thanksgiving with Uncle Joe or whatever, and he disagrees with you. And the tendency is for people uh, not to... Uh, separate from us, uh, from our ideas, uh, to say, since I disagree with your ideas and your ideas are contemptible, you are a contemptible person. Well, they're being manipulated by leaders on uh, their own side in media, politics, and we answer in kind. And in a very strong way, we're manipulated by leaders in media and politics and entertainment on campuses on our side to break the cycle, get the power, be happier. Again, the book is titled um, Love Your Enemies, Again, you can find that very concept in the Gospels, and more importantly, you can find how to do that. But he writes in the context of the current conflicts that we are facing in our culture today, which are seething and overwhelming and um, and gushing. I witnessed an exchange just recently with Chelsea Clinton where some college students were confronting her about something she had said, and they were holding her personally responsible for the events that took place, James, in the uh, mosque Um, of these last few days. They were holding her personally responsible, saying that she had personally incited what happened there by virtue of making the claim that we need to uh, provide opportunities for people to express themselves. It it was such an interesting exchange, and she sort of um, folded uh, beneath the pressure. Uh, But you wonder, at what point will someone say, 
what needs to be said to uh, some of these young people in these kinds of conflicts. In any event, the book is titled Loving Your Enemies. I think it's worth reading um, uh, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. It's uh, currently available. We're going to try to get an interview with uh, Mr. Books here as soon as that might be uh, possible. Wanted to remind you that uh, we understand House Bill 2217 here in the state of Oregon, one of four bills this legislative session that would expand Oregon's physician assisted suicide law has been scheduled for a public hearing tomorrow. That's the 19th tomorrow, three o'clock p.m. in hearing room E. Um, Oregon Right to Life opposes the bill. It is not. It's an expansion of the notion of physician assisted suicide. Now, Oregon's physician assisted suicide law contains a frightening loophole in which someone else could get away with administering the drug to a helpless victim. House Bill 2217 expands this loophole by changing taken to self-administer. Now, it may seem like a insignificant semantic difference, but it makes a significant legal difference. The word taken was specifically chosen when the law was passed. Um, Lois Anderson, who's the, the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, points out that it was selected so that it was clear that it was a conscious individual picking up the medication, placing it in their own mouth and swallowing it. Well, the sponsors are now changing the language specifically to broaden the application of the law. Now, whether or not an individual uh, would have administered the drug for him or herself, uh, or if it's being administered by someone who believes that's what should happen, um, is uh, at the uh, the core of this. There is no safety mechanism in place to ensure that another person isn't the one administering the medication. And by adding delivering by uh, another method, uh, they're redefining the law to allow the drugs to be administered through an IV, a feeding tube, injection, or even through a gas mask, and potentially by a person other than the patient themselves. Now, HB 2217 would push Oregon closer to legalized euthanasia, um, Lois Anderson points out, and makes the point that Oregon's lawmakers have an obligation to protect their most vulnerable constituents. This bill is nothing short of reckless abandonment of both these uh, citizens and their responsibilities as elected officials. Uh, so they're encouraging you, if you can, attend the hearing. Uh, that's Tuesday, 3 o'clock p.m., hearing room E uh, of the um, state capitol in Salem. Or you can communicate with your lawmaker. And by the way, Oregon Right to Life can link you to that individual if you don't know who they are or how to contact them. But again, that hearing taking place tomorrow. Let me encourage you to communicate with members on the committee, to pray about the hearing that's taking place, to attend if you can. Again, that's tomorrow, Tuesday, March the 19th, 3 o'clock p.m., hearing room E. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with John Schneider. Dr. Schneider is the Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. As mentioned earlier in the program, I am so honored to have with me in studio Dr. John Schneider. He is Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. I had the privilege of working with his wife for many years right here at KPDQ some years ago. And I have followed the work that you have done as a pastor and now as the Director of Nursing Home Ministries over the years. And I'm just grateful for your faithfulness and your diligence in serving um, and sharing the gospel throughout our community. So first of all, let me just uh, thank you for that, and thank you for being with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's uh, my pleasure, and uh, 
my wife has wonderful things to say about you as well. We uh, were good friends. You were. <laughs> yeah, it was. And it was still are. A lot of it, yes. Um, I had the opportunity to speak at a women's conference recently for Western Seminary, and I was asked to speak on um, how to minister the love of Christ to the abused, the marginalized, and the uh, there was a third word. And, one, you know, I think there are certain issues that immediately come to mind, certain people groups that come to mind in those categories. But while I was speaking, I tried to broaden our view of some of the populations that we have access to that need to hear the gospel, that need ministry. And I mentioned uh, seniors, the elderly, which really wasn't on many people's radar. Um, that's the work that you're doing. And I'm so grateful for it. And I want to really focus our attention on uh, the seniors, and I'm not sure what's the best way to to refer to them, what's most honorable to them. So maybe you can correct me in that regard. But let's talk about the work that you do in nursing home ministries and the population that has, in many cases, been deliberately overlooked in favor of the youth by the church in general. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's just the church. I think uh, I think it's, it's indicative, reflective of our of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, um, those that can't uh, fend for themselves, the, the unborn, the elderly, um, if, if they're not, quote-unquote, productive uh, citizens, many times they are, are forgotten and just pushed to the side. Uh, I don't think it's always that case uh, with families. Uh, we run into a lot of uh, situations where uh, their elderly parents or, or if a it's usually a mother because uh, they live longer, but mm-hmm. ha- has been brought out. They, the children bring them out to the area uh, so they can be close to them and kind of watch over them. Uh, but what has happened in many cases, uh, they've moved them away from uh, situations where they are uh, familiar, they have friends, they have church, and they're put into a, uh, a situation where they know no one, and they're alone. Uh, and many times, well-meaning children, uh, because they're busy, uh, they don't visit often. And so now they've, they've been uprooted and moved sometimes halfway across the country. They're with uh, people that they don't know. Uh, they, if they have difficulty making new friends, uh, that can be difficult. And they can't drive anymore in many cases. And, and it's, just a, it's just a real difficult time of life mm-hmm. for, for many. Um, and Nursing Home Ministries was started uh, almost 50 years ago now here in Portland. We're now in 15 states. Uh, we have about 150 active chaplains and others that are inactive. Uh, and we minister to, oh, anywhere of up to five to 6,000 people uh, a week. Um, and we find, I think, that uh, this age group is, uh, unlike I think many in the church would realize, is very open to the gospel. Uh, Jesus said that uh, unless you become as a little child, uh, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. In many cases, uh, these ind- these individuals have become almost as children again. Uh, they're dependent on their children. They're dependent on the facility for for their food, for their for their care. Uh, we even have one uh, chaplain in, in uh, down south that uh, uh, had a uh, her training in in child evangelism. And she's working with uh, dementia patients, and she's using child evangelism mm. uh, materials to to great success. And we're finding uh, a number of people are responding to this simple uh, truth of the gospel. 
I um, receive your newsletter, and I, I would encourage our listeners to subscribe as well because it it reminds me of the work that's being done, it, how to pray, and, and what the needs are. And in this latest version of the uh, the e newsletter, there's a reference to a gentleman whose name is similar to mine, George, and he expressed initially very little interest in the gospel, but through a relationship that was forged with one of the uh, nursing home ministry chaplains who uh, served the the two of them engaged in relationship and conversation. And this man who initially hadn't expressed no interest in the gospel, ultimately, I'm making a longer story short, ultimately came to faith in Christ. And I think it it was such a perfect illustration of uh, the possibilities of ministering to men and women in nursing homes throughout our community that we're missing. Yeah, and, and it's it's a situation where so many people, um, if they have if they have rebelled against Christ for for their entire life, I, so many have that feeling. Uh, well, how could he possibly? Yeah, time is running out. Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've lived my life, and I've I've rejected him all these years, and I've and if you just knew all that I've done and all that I've, uh, you know, against God, he he couldn't surely accept me. And uh, we're finding that as chaplains uh, come alongside individuals such as this, um, strike up relationships, um, and as they see uh, that, that God does love them and that uh, Christ has uh, died for them and all that they've done, that we're, we're all sinners. I was reading something uh, just uh, today uh, where someone mentioned the fact that uh, we're comparing uh, a cross to a wheelchair, uh, both are uh, examples of uh, of the fall of sin, uh, not individual sin, but of Adam's sin. Uh, but the fact is, we're all sinners, uh, and we need we need the cross. We need Jesus Christ. And uh, as we share with these elderly people, and as we get close to them, and as they see that uh, I am lovable, uh, that God does love me, and this person who is uh, spending his or her time with me uh, loves me. Uh, then the truth of of Christ's love becomes much more real to them. Yeah, I think for for many people in those uh, senior years, you begin to recognize um, that my works cannot accomplish my salvation. I think when you're younger and you're still vigorous, you tend to think if I'm just good enough, then perhaps I can win God's favor. But when you are stripped of the things that, that were once, you know, the hallmarks of what your life was all about, then you really have time to think for one thing and then to consider the truth of the gospel that God's love for me, uh, my redemption is not dependent on what I have done or can do for him. There is an openness that I think we sometimes overlook. Oh, very definitely. And uh, I'm finding senior ministry so uh, just so rewarding and and, uh, exciting. I have to admit when I was pastoring, this was probably uh, the part of ministry that I disliked the most, I shouldn't say, or liked the least, let's put it that way, <laughs> uh, of visiting retirement homes. And and I tried to make excuses to myself, well, these aren't people that are going to benefit my church. These aren't people that are going to, you know, uh, give a lot of money or provide a lot of service uh, in the church. Uh, but one thing I've discovered uh, in, in oh, 20-some years now I've been doing this is that um, I stress to these individuals as they as they come to know the Lord that uh, just because uh, you are old does not mean God does not have a purpose for you. Um, you know, we have so many scriptural examples of Moses and Caleb and Anna that uh, where elderly people God used uh, in just some remarkable ways, and uh, we're finding that 
uh, as we give, uh, as we share the gospel with them, and as we share with these people too, that also they have a a part in God's kingdom. Uh, it's we're finding that these these individuals that come to know Christ in the nursing homes are are experiencing uh, real joy and. Truly, the golden years are just that. They're mm-hmm. seeing they're, they're some of the best years, most fruitful years they have for, for the Lord. Mm. So that's exciting, too. Oh, that is exciting. And that comes when the gospel is presented, when there are relationships that are, are built. There's an understanding of God's love and that their life still has value. Yes. So many of us describe ourselves, and rightly so, as pro-life. Uh, that begins at the that one end of the continuum, and it it ends at the yes. other end of the continuum. We can't abandon that no. far end of the continuum because life has value until God um, puts an end to it. Right, and I think we've we we obviously have put emphasis on uh, in the pro life movement on on uh, the preborn and and the unborn, uh, but I think we do need to uh, carry it on as well as you say toward uh, toward the end of life and. And realize that that is just as special and just as mm-hmm. valuable uh, and just as, uh, as much in need of protection as, yeah, as the other yeah. one. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. John Schneider. He is the executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. We'll let you know how you can uh, subscribe to the e newsletter as well as uh, support the ministry in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. If you've just joined me, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. John Schneider. He is executive director of Nursing Home Ministries. He's also served for many years as a pastor here in our community. And I'm just uh, so honored to have you with us in studio t- today to talk about this important work that's being done in our communities. Give us some perspective on the population of, of seniors who are in nursing homes just in our area alone. Uh, thousands. <laughs> Uh, I was just looking over some national statistics, and the, and the uh, they're amazing. Um, by 2050, they're estimated that there are going to be somewhere close to 30 million people in uh, long-term care. And that right now, uh, someone who is 65, I'm a couple years past that, uh, anyone 65 or over has a 52% chance of needing long-term care at some point in mm-hmm. their life. So that's, a, that's a, a lot of people, and it's a lot of money. Uh, we were talking earlier uh, off uh, camera, off camera, uh, <laughs> but, uh, that uh, it's big business now, and uh, uh, corporations are moving in and they're buying up these, uh, w- which were once family-oriented uh, uh, enterprises. And uh, uh, but two hundred twenty-five billion dollars was spent. Uh, this was a, an old statistic from several years ago uh, on long-term care. I think it was two thousand fifteen. So. Uh, it's with the aging of our of our population. Uh, it's only only going to become more and more uh, necessary. And I think this is a just a one of the uh, ripe uh, fields, mm-hmm. uh, harvest fields for for the church to uh, to reach people for Christ. Now, you and I discussed this before the program, but how welcoming are some of these larger corporations that are now overseeing long term care? to ministry being done or the, or the spiritual needs of their clients being seen to in their facilities? How challenging is that? And do you anticipate it becoming more challenging over time? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's, it is definitely a challenge, and I think it's, uh, it's going to become more and more uh, of a challenge. Uh, we have several situations where uh, chaplains have been uh, asked to leave, uh, 
other cases, uh, it's wide open. Um, because it's a, uh, these are, are corporate-run, and sometimes the corporations are not local, uh, they don't necessarily have a, a real spiritual uh, interest or interest in spiritual things. Uh, Oregon law requires uh, if someone wants spiritual uh, care that they have to provide it. Um, so that that's a benefit. But at the same time, that opens the door for uh, all kinds of mm-hmm. uh, cults and, and various things. So, again, this ministry is very needed. Um, I'd like to I'd like to be able to say that these corporations were real supportive and positive, and and there are some, but I think that more often than not, uh, they are not supportive, and, and we are we pray constantly for uh, the facility staff people, and they have become part of the of the real ministry as well as well as the families of the people because the staff people really set the tone for each individual uh, uh, facility care facility, and if they if Christians are getting involved in that area, which many do because it's a it's an area that uh, you can express the love of Christ and uh, a lot of times uh, it's only Christians who have a sense of, uh, of ministry because most of these positions are not well paid mm-hmm. um, but if we if we can get the staff supportive, we find that uh, the open doors to the to the facility are, are much much wider. How are those connections typically made? Does a resident express an interest in having someone come? Is there a family member that says, you know, I have a father and it would, is this something you could do? How do you generally make those connections? Uh, both of those things happen, but generally speaking, it, it is uh, usually a, a facility. Uh, it will be someone, uh, generally a, a Christian uh, in a particular facility that will uh, contact the office and say, uh, you know, we, we have uh, uh, this and we'd like someone, uh, we have a number of people here whose spiritual needs are not being met. Uh, do you have someone that could come and, and uh, provide that spiritual care for, mm-hmm. for our people? Uh, that's usually the case. Sometimes, like you said, it'll be a it'll be a a, a family member or the individual themselves. Uh, but it's interesting from my experience too. It's it's uh, almost like uh, uh, networking. Uh, I go to one place and uh, uh, somebody will. Be visiting and they'll hear about it and they say, well, my mother or my dad's in another facility. Is there anyone over there? And can you provide someone there? And uh, it, it snowballs in that way. Yeah, well. yeah. I think one of the things that makes individuals who care about the gospel, who care about the the unsaved, are reluctant to consider nursing home ministry are the challenges that they fear they might face. Being in a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility can be somewhat depressing. It can be challenging. Um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of the kind of work that you do and uh, why people are, are reluctant to engage those who are in nursing facilities who need to hear the gospel? Just from a personal standpoint, I, I grew up um, and I uh, had an aunt in a, a nursing facility that we'd visit occasionally. And I can remember uh, uh, telling Sandy, my wife now at the time, uh, not at the time, but now, uh, <laughs> saying, don't ever if, if we get married, don't mm. ever put me in a place like this. Yeah. Because uh, it was depressing. Uh, but one of the things I'm finding with the corporate uh, takeovers of these places is that they're making them much more livable uh, in the sense of uh, the amenities. Uh, with uh, one particular place I go to, uh, when we started, they did not allow walkers. Uh, now just about everyone there has a walker. This is after 20-some years. 
but the, they just were bought out by a, a large uh, company, and they changed everything. And now they're directing their uh, their all their attention at uh, young retirees. So they'll have all kinds of things that would appeal to persons in their you know late fifties, early sixties. A lot of activities, a lot of uh, uh, going places and doing things, which is great, but that is also a challenge because a lot of times those supersede the uh, the times for spiritual renewal, and, and you go to visit some people and they're gone doing this or that, mm-hmm. active. And I think uh, the whole concept of keeping them active while good uh, also keeps the uh, uh, keeps them from really reflecting on, yeah. on spiritual things yeah. sometimes. Yeah, uh, And challenges... Um, Again, I think it's uh, people feeling that uh, I've come here to to die. Uh, again, uh, I, I forget the statistic, but it's it's really high. Eighty, ninety percent of of individuals in retirement homes have no one that visits them on a regular basis. Uh, so you're coming in, and uh, I think, but because of that, there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of them are suspicious uh, of. Someone coming in, you know, well, what church do you represent? Mm-hmm. And, you know, are you trying to uh, get my money? Are you trying to uh, get me to come to your church? Uh, I think that's one uh, advantage of being representing a uh, an interdenominational ministry. No, we're not representing any church. We're representing Christ. And uh, we're coming to, uh, because uh, God's mandate is that we're to come and, and share with you, and we, we love you, and we want to see you uh, have a, a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, for listeners who are interested in um, ministering to um, our elders in these kinds of facilities, what are some of the ways that they can come alongside you in this work? There are all kinds of ways. Uh, of course, uh, we are a unique uh, elder care ministry in, in that we, have, uh, we provide chaplains. Uh, most ministries are, are all volunteers. We do accept volunteers who, if they want to come and, and, and just go with a chaplain, and, and we have people that... that go in to facilities, read scripture, just uh, share, uh, eat lunch with the, uh, or dinner with the uh, residents. Others go in and, and uh, uh, like I said, uh, we have one that does a puppet ministry. Uh, we have another gentleman that has a, a dog that uh, uh, he's done prison ministry as well, but he goes in and just takes his dog, walks through the, the facility and, and opens doors that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we provide training. Uh, you don't have to be a, a, a trained or ordained individual, um, and uh, you can do it uh, with as much time or as little time as you have. Uh, the doors are open for anyone who loves the Lord and has a heart for the elder. Yeah. What's the best way for our listeners to communicate with you and to find out more about Nursing Home Ministries? Well, you can go to our website. It's just nursinghomeministries.com, or you can go to uh, or call the office, 503-771-4154, yeah, you can reach me uh, uh, at my email address. It's just John Schneider, all lowercase, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, underscore 316 at hotmail.com. And uh, we'd love to, to speak with you and uh, you might get a free lunch out of it. And uh, <laughs> and uh, love to put you to work for the Lord in, in elder care ministry. Again, that website is nursinghomeministriesnhm.com, nhm.com. The phone number, 503 503- 771 4154 
And I would encourage you to be in touch. I, as I mentioned, I enjoy the newsletter. It keeps me updated on what's happening with the ministry and mindful of a population that lives, um, you know, right in our midst that needs to hear the gospel. And I would encourage you uh, to do the same. So NHM nursing home ministries dot com or five oh three seven seven one four one five four. How can we pray for you in the days ahead as you continue to reach out to the elders in our community? Well, you can surely pray for me. I've been uh, one year and three days on this uh, on this job now as executive director. Her uh, former director passed away, and uh, uh, it's it's a big job, and uh, it's a second generation now. We've been uh, again almost fifty years, and so um, I wasn't around when it was formed. Uh, and so, as any ministry moves into its second generation, there are going to be a lot of challenges, mm-hmm. and with the changes. Uh, just keep praying that the door, the doors would remain open, uh, that uh, the adversary, and there are, again, challenges, that the adversary would be kept at bay and that uh, we would continue to be free to, to share the gospel in, in the foster homes, the adult care facilities, the, uh, the dementia and, and Alzheimer's wards, and uh, in just every place that uh, Christ's name would be lifted up. Amen. Well, again, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to those who are chaplains and volunteers with Nursing Home Ministries for uh, ministering the gospel to those who are so often forgotten among us. Again, uh, Dr. John Schneider, Executive Director of Nursing Home Ministries. Check them out. Uh, there's work to be done. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Nate Pyle, author of More Than You Can Handle, When Life's Overwhelming Pain Meets God's Overcoming Grace. I know a lot of you can relate to that, uh, the, the convergence of those two things, but the grace of God can be overwhelming just when we need to be overwhelmed by that, uh, that goodness. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Lorraine Varela. She's the author of Planned from the Start, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. This is a companion to the movie uh, that uh, is soon to be released, if it hasn't already been, and I'm not sure of the timing on that. Uh, But we're going to talk about a woman whose life was not planned by uh, her mother or uh, father for that matter, and yet God had a plan from uh, the very beginning when she was in her mother's womb, and she has experienced through this uncertainty that Uh, Her life began in with joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope. That's coming up on Wednesday's program. It's part of the Romans 828 Redemption Press Project. And then on on Friday, we're going to lighten things up. We're working on a, a couple of things for Thursday. You know, our attention has been focused a lot on Venezuela and how socialism has stripped the country of its um, economic vigor that was once enjoyed there. But little has been said about the body of Christ in Venezuela. And I appreciated that Christianity Today recently wrote on Venezuelan brothers and sisters who are suffering as a consequence of the economic downturn there. Well, as you know, Venezuela has been in crisis for years. The situation has arguably taken an even greater turn for the worst in recent uh, weeks. Recently, a blackout cut off the entire country from electricity. Citizens have been uh, victims uh, to frequent water shortages. We've seen black water now coming through the taps in many uh, places. And a currency that's losing its value at unprecedented rates has left the entire country in peril. Well, at the same time, more than 3 million people have left the country of 31 million people, roughly 10% of that population. Now, the country is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic uh, and, like much of Latin America, has experienced the growing influence of Protestantism 
uh, there as well. Well, according to Pew Research Center's 2014 numbers, Protestants currently make up about 17% of the population. Well, the Venezuelan-born raised pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Milwaukee uh, says, uh, or rather joined digital media uh, producer Morgan Lee and editor Chief Mark Galley to discuss how oil brought Protestantism into Venezuela uh, and why pastors won't speak out politically and his advice for people who uh, want to help. You can find that in the latest edition of Christianity Today. It's a rather interesting analysis of the impact that all of this is having on the body of Christ. Uh, Morgan Lee writes, the only thing I will say about Venezuela, which is I feel like there's been a couple of times in the past couple years where it's touched me a little bit more closely. One of them was just one of my friends who came here to play baseball professionally. He did play professionally, not in the major leagues, but in the minors. And I texted him a couple of days ago before we recorded this show, and this is uh, from the Christianity Today program, and just asked him what was going on with his family and how he was doing. His dad is still in the country. He mentioned uh, that he'd heard uh, there were blackouts recently, that his family was affected by those that... Um, it's a little bit different when uh, you have that connection. Then when I was in Orlando last year, uh, Morgan Lee writes, my Lyft driver uh, that had been slightly ignored, and then at the end of the trip they started up a, a conversation in Spanish, uh, told her that he was a political dissident who had protested against Maduro, had fled the country, so that uh, it was a fascinating conversation in that regard. Um, uh, he made the point that for those who are in the body of Christ, they're suffering in the same way that many in the country uh, has. It has fractured the church in ways that were not um, uh, anticipated and that this has become something of a, um, a challenge uh, as poverty has overwhelmed not just those in the general population, but the church as well that would like to be in a position to be able to love and serve others. So brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering. The church has been unable to. Um, serve in the way that they would have uh, have liked in this kind of an economic challenging season. And you've got a tenth of the population uh, that has fled uh, the country. So as we're thinking about the destruction of that country from an economic standpoint, from a political standpoint, it's important to remember that there are those who are also suffering as a consequence of um, these circumstances and in the, the um, sharing of the, the gospel and ministering in their respective communities. So keep them in prayer as you're thinking about what's happening in uh, Venezuela. A couple of things I want to mention before we uh, wrap up this afternoon. Uh, First of all, I want to remind you that uh, there's an opportunity for you to enjoy some great Southern gospel music coming up uh, this summer. You can find out more on kpdq.com, and I'm referring to the Gospel Sing Live where you're going to have some great music featured, live music music featured, and uh, all the details are on our webpage. So check that out. Also, if you're looking for discounts in Christian education, now is the season for just that, where we are offering discounts of up to 40% on Christian schools throughout the uh, Portland metro area and uh, I believe in the Vancouver area as well. To learn more, go to Listener Savings. Dot com listener single savings plural listener savings.com for more details and you might find that a christian education is more affordable than uh, you anticipated finally i want to remind you that our podcast best day ever is available you can go to kpdq.com for more information it features women on the, the air here on kpdq and our sister station the fish and you're going to be hearing in the next couple of days a girls night out 
a comedy night. So we'll be giving you details on that. But we'd like to encourage you to check out our podcast, Best Day Ever. And uh, you're going to have an opportunity to hear casual conversation on issues that matter to you. Just, uh, you know, walk in the walk in uh, in the Christian faith. So check that out, kpdq.com, Best Day Ever podcast. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we will talk with Nate Pyle. More than you can handle when life's overwhelming pain meets God's overwhelming grace. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program and Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.